Welcome to episode 24 of the Executives in Wealth Management podcast. I'll start by saying Happy New Year. This is our first podcast of 2024. 2023 has, has come and gone rather quickly, uh, but thank you for everyone that supported the podcast getting off the mark in 2023. We'll certainly be producing a podcast every other week for the next couple of years, so you're stuck with me for a little while yet. But for episode 24, we were joined by our good friend, Nick Stebbing. Nick's most recent role was Chief Operating Officer at Saltus. Now, I'll make a statement here. Uh, I believe that Nick is arguably one of the most well-accomplished and experienced COOs in a sub-500 person vertically integrated wealth manager in the UK market. There you go, Nick. And I can say that because I think as a as a general observation, our industry lacks diversity, but primarily I mean diversity of background. Too many people, in my opinion, have come from a very similar environment, let's say a bank or a power planet to an ops manager, if we're talking about a COO function directly. Whereas Nick brings a real breadth of expertise across the full value chain of vertically integrated business with time at Pershing, for example, with time at BMY Mellon in New York, plus now time in a scaling PE-backed advice practice that's been tremendously successful over the last few years. I think if you couple all of that together with the sharp intellect and and real commercial acumen of someone like Nick, you get a really interesting character and set of skills. So I would seriously urge anybody, and particularly any aspiring COOs, to listen very carefully to the next 60 minutes because it's it's quite powerful stuff. Now, in the conversation, we talk about all sorts, really. We talk about Nick's general observations of, of, of a vertically integrated market and the pros and cons of that. We talk about the difference between being successful in Boney Mellon in BNY and then in Saltus, it's very different. We talk about, again, the theme comes up of how to be successful is not necessarily just going directly upwards. You need vertical and horizontal experience. Think outside the box, do something different. It all rounds your experience and makes you better people. But also Nick takes a big step to share some really personal stuff about his own mental well-being which I think first of all I think would have been hard to do but secondly I think it's super important that more males I'll say but more people are talking about particularly people that hold functions such as a COO I won't go too much into that now but it's really personal and really powerful stuff so thanks Nick for taking the time to do it but again thanks everybody for persevering through 2023 hopefully the podcasts are getting better i'm certainly enjoying doing them more now um but yeah let's let's get stuck into the conversation nice to see you nick how are you doing not too bad thank you tom how are you yeah i'm all right it's um what 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 day is it now it's uh the 21st of december so near nearly kind of stopping for christmas i think more or less this is the last day now so a lot of work to do Stosh. yet but nearly there yeah good stuff so um, I know you've listened to a couple of these now, Nick. So the idea is to just understand you and your experiences, your career, um, lessons, mistakes, all that sort of good stuff, and hear your perspective on wealth management more broadly. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to just hear, um, I guess, you kind of growing up, the things that made you, you know, whichever parts of that story you think is, is right to share on this platform. Sure. Um, so I, I probably had what um, is a traditional wealth management upbringing in that I grew up in what Richmond would call Metro land, um, which is sort of the northwest of London, so sort of the sense, uh, Hertfordshire and Buckinghamshire meet. Um, very sort of middle-class upbringing, um, was very lucky to go to a really good private school up there up there um and you know during my time at school i, I was i was a bit of an all-round sort of like in terms of academics so i turned my hand to humanities i turned my hand to sciences so i was sort of like okay everything 
Um, but growing up, I decided for some reason, which I've never quite worked out why, that what I really wanted to do when I got to university was to study law. Um, and so I came to apply to university and uh, I was uh, lucky to get into um, Oxford uh, to study what they call jurisprudence, which is essentially their law degree. And I think like most people, if you do a law degree, it's sort of like halfway through that, you sort of realise, actually, I don't really like law. And it's not what I want to be doing, which is a shame when you sort of two years into a three-year degree. Um, I was at university in 94 to 97, so it was like the dying days of the last Tory government. I mean, that's a bit of deja vu coming up. And so there was things like admin law, which sound really dull, but with politics and how I get things through, um, through using judicial reviews and stuff, and or executive powers that were then getting judicially reviewed. And um, those were those were subjects that really interested me. The uh, law bits like contract and tort and land law are really dull and boring. So although I had a place at bar school, um, I decided when I finished, I was going to get that up and I was going to go and try and find myself a job. Um, 97, lots of people were leaving financial services to go and work for dot coms, um, which struck me as a great opportunity to go and work for a financial service firm. Um, so I ended up working at Lloyds Bank on the graduate training scheme for a couple of years. Um, and then I moved to City Group in 2000, just before the dot bombable burst. So I took the job at City Group because they told me that you'd be to spend all your time traveling around. And as a like, 23 year old, that sounded really exciting to spend my time traveling around Europe and Asia and the States. It took me about three years before I got on a plane anywhere because this was <laughs> too much of the travel. Um, I started off in a finance role there. Um, I, got, I got accused of having a non-linear CV by someone recently. Um, I started off in the finance role. Then I worked in M&A for a bit. Um, worked out of New York, which was really interesting. Um, on the sort of masters of the universe days, boom time. And then, uh, so indicitously, I decided I wanted to come back to London um, in about 2007, uh, because the team I worked in just got decimated um, post, post that, post uh, the financial crisis hitting. Um, and I ended up working, looking after that um, and cash management products for the asset management industry for broker dealers, um, which was, I mean, sort of, really hard work. I had a global team, so there was like never a day off. I remember emailing people on Christmas Day. And then obviously we had stuff like when Lehman's one under, uh, Lehman's one of my big clients. So that was interesting times trying to work out what assets and liabilities the bank had, um, just see how long we could keep supporting Lehman's for. Like a list, you, you felt like you were sort of watching history, even at the time, a bit. And I, I think it's something that will sort of uh, go that you know, sort of something you remember. Then in 2011, um, City was in the process of buying the uh, back office function to support a couple of rap platforms. And I got asked if I'd come and help out with that. Um, I always remember being asked, it was like sort of a Friday afternoon, and uh, Person who was to become my boss, not to my office lawyer, said, "Would you would you mind helping me out?" And I thought he meant like for a couple of days, and no, he meant you know buying this business in Glasgow and then running it. Um, really, really interesting. That was my like sort of first exposure, really, to sort of the wealth side of things. Um, started to work with some of the alumni of this podcast, people like David Ferguson. Um, oh yeah, re really, really great guy um had a, had a really brilliant team of people who worked with me so it was quite good fun it was early days of, of the platform certainly in nexus i think we're about one and a half billion at the time um so there, there was lots and lots going on they was they were very entrepreneurial um and one i suppose one of my regrets is you, so if you work it for a bank like citigroup and you do quite well you get you get a bit mm -hmm arrogant and i wish i'd spent a bit more time listening to people like david at the time you know i could have learned so much more from him than i, than I did and it's you know for anyone who has any career i guess but is spend more time listening than talking and it's you know something that it took me a long time to get my head around um 
And then City, um, as is its want, uh, decided to sort of re restructure. And um, rather than having a broad range of asset owners that decided to support, it looked to go more into a vertical supporting sort of internal prime brokerage as well as third-party prime brokerage. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember I met the guy who was coming in to run this business, and he said, there's three things I don't like. One is um, operations in unusual uh, places non-scalable places secondly was um third-party technology um, and thirdly is hobby businesses and although by most people's measures this was a reasonably sized business by city terms it wasn't so i was three for three on that and i saw uh, <laughs> there's the writing on the wall and what little credibility i had would have been completely lost if i'd gone and knocked on david's door and said guess what after you know two years off buying this business we're going to sell it again because the original sale had definitely slowed them down a bit. Um, so I decided to leave. Um, the person who had knocked on my door sort of three years earlier had gone off to be CEO of Pershing, which is part of Bank of New York, wealth management business. Um, so I went to watch him over there. He left me six months after that. So maybe there's like a lesson there that, you know, may, maybe uh, he was running away from me very quickly. Um, but, you know, I enjoyed my, my time at Pershing, learned more about wealth management industry, had a, had a number of clients. I ran the product management and development teams there. Spent a lot of time looking at technology, but also MIFID was coming in. And so a lot of the money that I would like to spend on customers was being spent on related things. Uh, and it was quite hard to get yeah. everything done that I would like to do. Um, and I got the blue from someone saying, um, there's a wealth management firm, they're looking for COA, are you interested? Uh, and I was, um, and I went and met John McIntosh in what was supposed to be a sort of half hour meet and greet and ended up being four and a half hours, which I took to be a pretty good sign. Um, got the job at Sources in 2017. At the time, they had about 400 million in wealth management assets and uh, we grew to about three and a half billion today we grew it from about 40 people to just under 200 people and then in end, very end of 2022 we went through sale to a private equity company pcp um and yeah a year, a year on from that um you know made the difficult decision that uh, also the right decision uh, that it was time to sort of leave Sorter. So we're recording this on the 21st of December and come the end of this month, I will no longer be at Sorter, which is, you know, sort of, uh, you know, it's a good time. You know, we helped grow the business massively. It was going to go through the sales process. Uh, really interesting. Um, and, you know, sort of, we, we definitely part as friends. That brings you up to not only today, in 10 days' time as well. <laughs> So that was a that was a bit of a whirlwind of like twenty year twenty twenty five <laughs> years I think there it was yeah. Um, I was hoping we might, might talk about New York for fifteen minutes, but um, so okay, so there is a lot in that, and I know there was kind of some key themes that we'll we want to kind of get to. Um, but can I just kind of get your general observation of um, you know you, you've worked at some big, I'll say institutional well corporate organizations that are playing in the institutional market you know and now comparing that to uh an sme in a retail market which is very different even if it is kind of still financial services and wealth management but how did you navigate that kind of difference of environment um it's, it's so different uh, you know entrepreneurial sme looking for finance to scale um to city or pershing you know running custody yeah. or product is success in those environments is is not by doing the same thing um no it's not i so i think the things that you you learn skills in the large organizations um that you can then apply in the smaller organizations i think you know we sort of talk a bit about sort of what some of the challenges of that particularly in larger organizations are you can make a lot more of a difference, obviously, in an SME. You can come in and you can change things a lot more. Yeah. You're a lot more in control of your own destiny. I think going from a large organization to a small one is probably a lot easier than vice versa. Um, in my days at City, I came across a few people who had worked. Some smaller companies came on board 
they found that transition very difficult. Um, so I'll give you I'll give you one example. Um, so um, at City, I learned about lean manufacturing processes, and it took me a long time to get actually really what the, an embarrassing long time to really understand what lean was. But if I if I sort of you know touch on it for people who aren't so familiar with it, it's um, it's a mechanism that lots of people think of. It is designed just to generate efficiency in, in a business. But it's also designed to deliver really great products. It came out of Toyota production system, which unsurprisingly came from the Toyota car manufacturer. And they looked at how to, how to maximize their throughput, but also how to deliver great products at the end, at the end of it. Um, and there's a, there's a great story where they, um, they uh, used to have metal plates that pressed sort of bits of coal together. And the standard was that that took just three days to change those big, massive plates. So you had to get them completely aligned. Um, and Toyota worked out that actually what you could do is you could put them on runners. And they moved it from being three days to under three minutes. And then eventually they got it down to under a minute. And we talk about things like economic batch quantity, which is how many how many things do you need to produce before it makes sense to convert to change things over and so obviously if it takes you three days that's closing down the factory for three days so you build a big floor of stuff behind you and by making it really really quick what it means is you can do that a lot quicker with because economic batch quantity comes down to ideally one um which means you can convert it as much as possible that reduces your inventory reduces your waste reduces your waiting time and all of those concepts can then be applied into into city groups, the city groups have launched that, but also can be applied into small, medium-sized businesses. So when I joined Sortus, it took us uh, 28 business days to get our quarterly valuations out. And by looking at the steps of that process, you could really reduce that down. And we ended up sort of getting them out in like sort of five business days. I'm sure there's more that you can do, but you know, you can work out where the value is to your customer. And so five days felt fine after the quarter end. So you can take those processes mm -hmm. and apply them. Um, but I think at large organizations, and I'm going to talk about city here, but I'm going to say two caveats. Firstly, you know, all my knowledge of city is over 10 years out of date. So the organization may well have changed dramatically. And secondly, I, I talk about city, but I don't think they're, they're an outlier. I think certainly on Wall Street, large bank, but I think lots of other industries are the same. And never really i never really felt that like lean worked at city and the reason i sort of feel it didn't was because it's a combination of processes which you can sit and learn and study and i've sort of done that quite a lot of my career but also about the culture of the organization and i think embedding the right culture into lean is really really interesting. you think about Japanese companies, those traditional images we have of people doing exercise in the courtyards, they're like quite paternalistic organizations. And I think, you know, you'd argue that City is probably at the other end of the spectrum. So when I think about City, they, they'd signed up to, there's a guy called Milton Friedman, I'm sure you've probably heard of him. Uh, he wrote in 1970, he called it the Sweden Doctrine, it was sort of about shareholder value. And it was, a company should be able to do whatever it wants within the confines of the law to create value for its shareholders. And that is its sole moral purpose. It's not to look after customers. It's not to look after employees. It's just to create value. And that really sort of took hold on in a lot of American organizations, but I think over here as well. Um, and a guy called Jack Welch, who was CEO of uh, GE, wrote about this in multiple books. And he wrote about, um, and they came up with a system called Rank and Yank. So rank and yank is you rank all your employees, top twenty percent get yeah. bonuses, bottom ten percent right. get fired. So if you think about yeah. what Lean is trying to do, it's trying to um, reduce waste, improve collaboration between people. And if you're sat there and you've made a mistake, say, and there's a process that doesn't quite work. If you're in a sort of rank and yank type environment, the last thing you're probably going to do is put your hand up and say, you know, this, uh, this doesn't really work. Um, I've made a mistake. So, um, so the culture, I think, 
of those sorts of organizations, of those very shareholder value driven organizations, is to reduce the reduce the um the willingness of employees to put up their hand and also reduce the willingness of people to collaborate because actually what you want to do is retain your knowledge to yourself and you know i work with some brilliant people who were completely willing to share but i would say that's in spite of the system rather than because of it um and So, you know, I always remember that 3M story about some guy who created this particularly non-adhesive glue and he didn't know what to do with it and he just told everyone and then someone else was on holiday and they would try and put bits of paper in there but, so they kept on falling out and then some, and then the post-it note came out and that's complete collaboration between two people. Yeah. And um, I think um, in order for Lean to work effectively, you need to have... Um, you need to have those two things. And I think you really need to build in the culture of an organization. And so in a very long-winded way, but if you think about what you can do in a small company, if you can really set your culture to be like that, you can say, that's not, we're never going to make any redundancies, but we're going to do our best to avoid them. We're certainly not going to do them just to hit some artificial targets that we set ourselves at the start of the year, or we're not going to over-recruit. And then fire people six months or a year later when the market, when there's a market downturn. And I think, you know, so when I look at organizations that I would like to work in and think about how you build teams, I think the art of management is really to get the best out of your weakest performers. You know, your good performers should be quite easy to manage generally. Um, Mm -hmm. And you've got to support those people. And it's far more, if if you're only hiring in people that you think are going to be with you for a long time, then you've got you're far more embedded and far more you know sort of focused on getting those people to work well, and I think that whole lean style what a lot of organisations miss is the culture piece, and I think smaller companies it's it's obviously easier to create that structure. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge okay. this now. Um, so um, I I completely agree with everything that you've just said, um, but the kind of juxtaposition with with what you're saying is that we're seeing a large amount of private equity you know north american money flowing into scaling smes and whether it's we're not going to talk about any specific house or not even going to talk about salter specifically because there's one of 32 or whatever um how does that how how do how do you manage that natural tension between getting the environment and the culture of an SME right to allow natural mistakes to happen, which is progressive and good and, and what we want to some extent. Um, but in a position where we all know that, you know, if right or wrong, private equity is about a cycle and driving value, you know, in a reasonably short period of time. So how do you manage yeah. that? Um, you see, I don't think those two things that are in contention really but i do understand where you're going from so i'll explain why i think that there's two real challenges with the sort of shareholder value theory that came up and they're they're both related to sort of how you how you treat your employees um the first one is in those environments you individuals feel that they're under a lot of the time and at all levels of the organization and when we're under stress, uh, there's this amazing hormone that we, as lots of other animals, produce called cortisol. And uh, cortisol's produced like so. On, on the African plains, you're about to be eaten by a predator. Cortisol starts firing through your body. That produces adrenaline. I'm not a biologist, so, so I apologise if this is wrong. But what I do know <laughs> is cortisol starts firing through your body. For you, you know, it is it is an innate reaction. And cortisol is this wonderful thing, and it's obviously really helpful in those high-stress situations. There's lots and lots of studies that show ongoing exposure to cortisol is bad for us as individuals. Um, And that results in both physiological damage and psychological damage. And I think, you know, and I'm speaking from experience. It's not something I've really spoken about too much. I listened to Peter talking very uh, emotionally about some of his experiences, Peter Mann. And, um, you know, when you look at what happens, you know, the death rate of people below 50, it is self-inflicted harm, 
arch disease. And both of those can be outcomes from excess cortisol of an extended period of time. So, you know, I, I think that there is a moral obligation to do better. Um, even if you want to be really hard-headed, you know, how many days do large organizations lose to stress-related illness in any given year? Um, it's huge numbers. Um, and, and I think it's just not, it's, it's not good for, for something to be in the environment. Secondly, I've spoken about like the sharing of information and why that's so important, why, why, why that's helpful. And if you look at firms that have gone, that have gone through these sort of relatively aggressive shareholder value propositions, certainly Citigroup, uh, GE even, if you'd invested your money in Citigroup when it formed in 1999, you'd be carrying quite a big loss today. If you'd invested your money in Toyota, you'd have quite a big day. So, you know, I, I think people look at PE and think that all they're focused on is the EBITDA today, the EBITDA tomorrow. But actually, I think if you're trying to build a business that is long-term value, and the point of a exit by a PE firm, whether that's through an IPO or whether that's through um, a sale to another you know, trade buyer or whatever, there is that they are really smart guys, right? And the people on the other side are typically smart guys as well. And what they're looking at is the future value of that company. And if they see a company that is being stressed to the nth degree in order to generate positive EBITDA today, you know, I could fire all my staff today and show amazing EBITDA for a day. And then tomorrow my customers start leaving yeah. because um, I've, got, I've, got yeah. magic, I've got no mechanism of servicing them. Then obviously that is not a long-term scalable business. So it's like, where on that matrix do you put it? And as I say, if you look at organizations with long-term growth structures that typically those that have sort of thought more about their staff are ones that then continue on on this growth trajectory for, for longer and um i mean actually think about the city there's um one city formed uh it was a merger between something called city court uh and travelers so travelers was like the sort of investment banking side this uh, Salomon Smith Barney, etc. And Citigroup was far more of a retail bank. And Sandy Wall ran Travelers, and a guy called John Reed uh, ran Citigroup. And within a year or so, John Reed was sort of ousted, I think is the general term that's used, but there was a power stroke. And um, John Reed, I, I think John Reed was like, you know, a visionary, and you do wonder what the difference the organization might have been different if it won that power battle so he he was for example was responsible for the mass rollout of atms in the us so he, he was the really person who sort of well, i think other people had them first but he was the person who sort of promoted them and rolled them out um and he wrote this thing called the memo from the beach and um this was it was written um i, I remember listening to David Ferguson's podcast, and he said, you know, things we've been talking about for uh, 12 years plus are still happening today, you know, bad things in this industry. The memo from the beach, it's focused on consumer banks, but I think it's really relevant. And it was written a month after I was born. So I can beat David by, you know, a factor of over three. Um, and he, he talked about three things. Oh, it's well worth the read if anyone's got time. But he talks about three things in there. He talks about it not being about selling products um, and he's talking about deposits or loans he talks about servicing the client need um, so what, what the families need in all from their banking needs or for their wealth management needs and how do you then meet those on an ongoing basis so you're not selling a pension you're trying to make someone safe for retirement meet, meet their give them peace of mind um, he talks about the criticality of service. And I know in one of your other podcasts, someone mentioned the Richard Branson quote, where, you know, if you look after your people, the service looks after itself. Um, I think that's very true. I think it's really, um, and then the third is talking about pricing. And he says something along the lines of, you know, it's although we set our prices to at best confuse our clients and at worst really annoy them. And I think we could again reflect on the wealth management industry today. And I've had 
I have two experiences, one sort of personal and one professional that I've had of broader wealth management industry. Um, so my oldest daughter was lucky enough to get a child trust fund where the government put 250 quid in. And a couple of years ago, I decided I wanted to put some money into a junior ISA for her, so I was trying to move it. And once I tracked it down, um, I'd invested in, when, when we first did it, I hadn't looked at it for 15 years, but I put it into US equities. And that 250 quid should have been worth about £1,000. But there we were 15 years later, and it was worth... Um, it was worth £400. So of the gain, of the £750 of notional gain, 80% of that gain had been taken in fees somewhere along the line or by poor performance. And then the second one was like, so that sort of, we got involved a lot in transfers. We're moving lots of assets onto our platform, into our DFM. And in 2021, a piece of legislation was passed by DWP around ancient transfers and trying to make them safer. And a lot of firms, particularly those firms that were losing assets, really embraced that legislation to make people go and talk to uh, money helper, etc. And in both cases, I don't think those firms were really thinking about their customer. They weren't thinking about what's a great outcome for the customer. And this isn't a zero-sum game. So if you read the Sunday Times, every week in the money section, they interview some celebrity and they say, you know, what's, what's uh, pensions or property? And the fact that we're even asking the question, you know, I find like yeah. bizarre, right? Because one, you've got, a, a, um, you've got a single asset, perhaps, certainly not a diversified portfolio. You've got tax on the way in, you've got tax on the way out, you've got tax on any income that you earn in the meantime. And the other one, you've got all these good things where the government's giving you free money and stuff. And yet, as often as not, people are saying uh, property is the way to go. And lots of people believe that. And obviously, we're, we've had a long-run boom in property prices in the UK. The fact that people are thinking property is better than pensions, that's on us, right? That's because we're not an industry that engenders trust. And I bring that back to we don't engender trust because we don't treat our clients and we don't treat our uh, uh, we don't treat, treat our employees properly. And so if you sit that, and that's not universal, there's some great firms out there, but the public perception of wealth management is that you know that's good for the end customer. And I looked at the mission statement of that firm that ran the CTF, and they were sort of, you know, we look to give families long-term, long-term great outcomes. People, if that's your only experience of investing, you can one second, I've got 150 quid profit over 15 years. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna do that again. I'm not gonna put some money, I'm not gonna trust these guys. And it pollutes the whole industry. And I think where one of the things that sources we used to do was, um, we would, if we found a mistake that had impacted a customer, we would tell the customer, even though the customer hadn't noticed. And the positivity you get from that far outweighs any cost of putting the customer back to the position that they should have been in. It was, you know, and oh. as, an, as an industry, I don't think we do enough of that sort of thing. So if I was a private equity investor, I would be looking to invest in firms that had this long-term growth potential. And I think that that's fundamentally firms that treat their customers well. I think that's a, a fairly comprehensive um, summary there, Nick. Yeah. No, um, I agree. Um, there's almost so much to, too much to try and pick into that we could go um, many different ways. Um, but I'll, I'll I'll come back to um, and kind of move the conversation forward to this point that you kind of you you kind of half dropped a hint about okay. something when you re referenced Peter Mann talking quite um you know obviously what? emotionally and sensitively around the the situation that happened with um in yeah. Peter's life um what was it that you were half alluding well, to Nick so for me um so I joined sources in joined source joined city in 2000 and um, not long after that, my father passed away. 
um, a pretty young age wow. of 52. Um, and I think, wow. I think, so, so I think there was a start there of, you know, some build up of issues and challenges on a personal level. But it was sort of, you know, running along sort of okay. And then I think, particularly, you know, as I say, you're working for an organization that is regularly getting rid of people. Your, your cortisol levels are inflamed on a constant basis. And then you get to, to 2007 and the whole market's going up in flames. I remember being away for a long weekend in 2008 and putting on the TV to see if uh, at four people on the Monday morning, see if City had trial for Chapter 11 over the weekend. And I think that build of stress after stress after stress um, ended up putting me in some very dark places. Um, and certainly at the time, I think we've got better over the intervening years. It wasn't something you spoke about. So I think there were times mm. when I covered it up completely and it was no one would have known apart from me. And there were times when it was probably quite obvious to some of the people that I worked with that I wasn't in a really good place. But it was, again, it wasn't really spoken of. It was may, maybe you self-medicated with alcohol a bit, you know, was the only thing that your sort of colleagues would do. Not because they were bad people, but because that was just the way of the world. And yeah, I yeah. was, you know, I was close to, you know, sort of being su suicidal at times. Um, I was oh, in yeah. a in a really really difficult place, and it was probably over a period of sort of ten years, you know. And it wasn't constant for ten years that I was in this hole, but there was lots of times within it. And it was only thanks to the support of wonderful family, wonderful friends, some professional help that you know eventually you get out of that. And I'd really urge you, you know, I know you've uh, been sort of doing some money for people, asking people to give some money towards a charity that helps people in those situations, but I just urge people to talk. And I think it's hopefully easier now to talk than it was, but it's still not easy. It's not something I've spoken about much. And I think people are still worried about the impact it might have on their careers, which is wrong. Um, you know, all these things, as I said, they're, you know, obviously looking into a bit, there are sort of biological reasons why we feel like we feel. And I think, it, you know, there is an onus on us as executives in wealth management to take responsibility for how our staff are feeling. And I think you've got to look at your corporate culture. And if you think it's making it worse, I mean, especially in the context, that I said, you know, this, there's lots of evidence that these models actually we make people feel worse. In some cases, we're certainly killing people. And we're not, you know, even, <laughs> you know, that wouldn't be okay anyway. But we're also not adding to the long-term value of our businesses either. So as organizations, we have to get better. And as executives in those organizations, get better. But running our business in such a way, not just supporting people after the event, it's not fixing afterwards. It's running our business in such a way that it doesn't, create these problems in the first place and i think there's things that we can do that we've touched upon not having a firing culture supporting your weaker employees giving people autonomy giving people expertise to do a great job you know if you do that it's not going to go to zero obviously you know unfortunately there's still going to be young people that have heart attacks for entirely unrelated reasons but we have but we'll be able to hold our heads up high that we've done the right things by people yeah and i think that um well first of all thanks for deciding to to share that nick now you said that you've not talked about it openly on this sort of platform before and i can understand why that would be a hard thing to do but i think that um i think that particularly young men i know it's not exclusively within men and i'm not going to pretend that it is but i think there's definitely a higher proportion of young men that find it more difficult to talk about how they feel about stuff um, maybe more than young women. Um, and I think that seeing someone like yourself in a, you know, you assume that the COO of um, Saltus or, you know, head of product at City, everything's rosy, right? Um, everything's great. And, and actually it's, it's kind of the whole purpose of this po podcast really is to kind of break down the facade of what a title actually means and understand Nick. Um, it, it's not, it's not always as, as it may seem. So, um, yeah, hopefully by creating this sort of platform where people can hear 
real life accounts of how you've had to go through your own challenges and work through things and rely on friends and family in ways that you haven't had to before hopefully it gives someone the confidence to to go and have a conversation and have a conversation with the charity as as peter referenced or or just with your mate in the pub you know just say it you know it starts with just saying it doesn't yeah it? i really hope so because again speaking from experience suppressing it doesn't work and living like yeah. that for 10 years as i did it's not how i would urge anyone to live their lives it's not how anyone wants to live their lives i suspect and actually only by talking about it and only by telling people how you feel can you make it and actually there are things that you know good employers can do to support you there are things that you know sort of friends and family can do to support you obviously um yeah so you know if you are in that situation for whatever reason talk about it and if you're if you run a company think about how your culture can support people before they get there I agree. I agree. But I'll move the conversation on, Nick, um, to a more kind of commercial aspect. Um, So we've been chatting for a little bit now. And I think what attracted, what I find, uh, choose my words here, what I find interesting and relatively unusual about your skill set and your background, for someone who is currently in a, I'll say a retail private client business, whatever shape or form that may be, um, within wealth, within wealth management, um, is that you do have exposure and direct experience in in most parts of the kind of vertical integration chain. Yeah, you know, at platform at Pershing, uh, in some form of uh, technology within investment management, within financial planning, within kind of fund creation, um, etc. Which is very unusual, um, even to a point of running the sort of administration and power planning functions within um, uh, Saltus. Um, I actually think you might be like one of three people in the whole of the UK that has that skill set. <laughs> Not very many. Um, so, you know, what what do you see? It's very topical to talk about. I talk about it every day in some way, talking about the, the roots of vertical integration. Um, and in the context of creating value in a business that's working towards an exit in three to five, seven years, you know, you hear big numbers being thrown around and, you know, that value creation and that uplift of EBITDA from eight times to 16 times value is, is comes from the stack and how much, how many assets and how much value you can draw out of that stack. So what do you think are the, the real challenges in scaling a vertically integrated business that actually does work in a kind of lean mentality where you are not just doing it for scale for scale sake, but are doing it in a in an environment that is genuinely trying to build a great customer outcome, whether it's a hundred clients or fifty thousand clients. Yeah, I mean, I I think you think about what you can do and what you can do well. Um, so consumer duty has obviously put a lot more focus than there was previously, perhaps, on ensuring that everything is really in the customer's interests. So as an example, at Sortus, whilst we ran a platform, we partnered with a third party for client money and custody. We didn't do that ourselves. Yeah. Um, I think, um, but I do think that having that ownership of the different bits of the value chain can enable you to really focus on what's going to, what's going to give you customer value, firstly. So making sure that things are, joined up um, in a way that means that the client isn't getting from one part of the value chain well you know I think you know all your money in equities next year because they're going to do great and then they get a report from somewhere else saying oh we're thinking about bonds you know obviously you, you can be you can be more more joined up like that um, but I also think you know as an industry we haven't done a great job of that throughput from financial planning all the way through into the investment world and maybe that's because, you know, there aren't that many people who think and look at the whole end to end. But we we repeat a lot of stuff. So if you if you're a financial planning firm using a third party platform, potentially using a third party DFM, you have to repeat a lot of being in of data, um, and all of that stuff not only has an overhead for you as an organisation, 
but risks things going wrong. So, you know, sometimes we've looked at business and one thing on their back office system and, and something else on their on their platform, you know, even things like dates of birth. So what is, is the person going to sort of hit pension age? You know, stuff like that. So by having a single source of truth all the way through your system, from, you know, if I'm going to recommend that you open an ISA and transfer a pension and contribute to your pension, actually that's my financial planning, but all of that stuff needs to be known at the back end by the investment platform as well. So joining that stuff up was really the ambition of what we're trying to do at Sources. Um, so I, I think you can generate better client outcomes like that. And I think you can also generate efficiencies for yourselves as a business. Now, you can come back to, you, you have to be careful because it can become a thing you do because you do it and it not be in the client's interest. So I think that there is an onus on financial planning firms if you're using an in-house DFM you need to ensure that that is the right product for your clients. You need to ensure that the DFM is doing a good job. If you're using an in-house platform, you need to have confidence in that. But you also have a lot more sway over getting good client outcomes. So again, you know, things like transfers out, if you're a platform, they tend to not be great at transfers out as we've sort of talked about already. Um, but if it's in-house, you know that that customer of yours as a financial planning firm is talking to 10 of their mates. So even if they've decided to leave you, they're having a great experience when they go away. It's something that they may still talk to other people about and you may still win more financial planning business. So you've got to be really mm. focused on, you know, you can join up what the customer wants a lot more easily into the whole value chain than you can and if it's a third party. Because if I go to pick a platform at random, transact and say to them, I'd like this because this customer wants it. The right thing for them to do is say no, because it's, you know, there's many hundreds of thousands of customers. And I think that's why we're seeing the success. I don't think we're seeing the success of firms like Seckle because people are desperate to get live basis points. I think we're seeing the success of them because their experiences of platforms have been quite hit and miss. And by having that control, they know that they're going to be able to deliver business-like outcomes. Hmm. Interesting. So kind of looking forward then, what's your what's your observation over the kind of medium term for how this this may kind of plan out? Um, so I think we have, again, we have seen vertical integration as a sort of dirty word. And I'm a bit aware that if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So to me, sort of everything looks like vertical, vertical integration is the way for I think it, I think it's got that. I think it's bound to happen more. I think you're, you're seeing platforms definitely sort of looking at where they move up the value chain into sort of starting to get distribution. I mean, obviously, Aberdeen did that. Um, have a financial planning firm. Others thinking about it. We've seen integrations with James Hay and Nucleus, etc. Um, and I think yeah. you're going to see more firms consolidating. Um, it's an oddity because we sort of talk about, um, you know, whether the number of firms is going to go up or down. And I think you do get people sort of coming out the back end, but typically they've come out the back end of, a, of an organization because they haven't really felt part of that organization. Um, whereas the more you integrate that flow, I think the more likely it is that people will stay there. They will see good outcomes for their customers. They will see the benefits to them of being part of that. Um, so I do think that over the medium term, we'll see fewer firms. We'll continue to see growth. We'll continue to see consolidators. You know, people were sort of talking when interest rates went up, consolidation would really slow down. And I think this year, consolidation has just continued a pace, right? So we'll see We'll see more of yeah. that and we'll see more vertical integration. Um, but as I say, I think consumer duty, if you'd asked me a year and a half ago, my guess would have been that it wouldn't have changed too much. But actually, what we're seeing is that the SCA are really, really using it. That clients were seeing SKP changing some of their pricing or Pose changing some of their pricing in a couple of years' time. Um, and I, I think all of these things are going to feed in that if you're running a vertically integrated firm, you have to be confident that all bits of that value shed are in the client interest. And you can't just assume it goes into your DFM because that's great for you. And the fact that it's really bad performance, bad luck, that's. I think you have to you have to be able to identify and prove that there are 
it's like outcomes as a result of it. Good. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay, so is there anything? Um, so I'll ask you one one kind of more question, then we'll we'll kind of move the conversation to on to the to the famous quick fire round. But uh, <laughs> I really really need a soundboard, <laughs> but I've not got one yet. Um, <laughs> um, so you've worked in, you know, you've worked in New York in the kind of heyday, exciting growth time. You've worked in Pershing City. You've worked in a P-backed advice business, you know, wrestling with big entrepreneurial personalities, I'm sure. Um, I got a message from someone quite recently, um, placed him, a relatively young, young, young financial planner, really aspirational chap. I like him a lot. Um, and he said, can we connect? Because I want a mentor, a uh, leadership mentor. Nice that you thought to ask the question, but kind of, you know, for someone like him, he's, I don't know, 28, um, still a planner, but clearly has aspirations to do bigger and broader things. You know, what advice would you give him at that stage in his career? So if you, you, you know, you could have a great career as a financial planner, you can have a 35, 40 year career, yeah. just, just doing that thing, just that's a big challenge. But you can have a great career doing that and earn a decent income. But if you want to do more, I think personally I would say this, it's more interesting to do more. I would say yeah. think about going and working in different bits of a business. And again, that's where like a vertically integrated firm can, can really help. So uh, we employed um, an amazing individual at Sorters, who I, I won't say her name because it would embarrass her, but she's like one of the brightest, hardworking people I know. And she joined us as a power planner. Then she ended up running power planning. Then she ended up running administration as well. But, you know, she's she's looking at all bits of that value chain. So, you know, it would be great for her to go and do some stuff on the fun side as well. So I would say, particularly when you're young, because as you get older, you get paid more for your particular expertise. When you're young, you get paid more for your pension. So you're giving up less if you go and say, well, actually, I want to spend some time going and looking at, you know, sort of how fun, fun admin works and not just thinking about being a power And once you've got a big book of clients and you've got 100, you know, 100 million pounds worth of assets you're looking after, it's quite hard to, to walk away from that. But when you're young, do as much as you can, do as many different things as you can. And one of the, you know, one of the great things about working for an organization the size of City is that I've probably had 10 jobs in 14 years and many of them were quite different. Yeah. That's that non-linear career. And it was a great way to sort of pick up knowledge and experience of different bits and different things. Um, I'm not saying everyone go and work for massive multinational conglomerates, but do you think about how can you go and do different bits within a firm, either on a full-time basis or perhaps part-time or whatever it is? It suits you. Get as much experience as possible because, as you say, there's not that many people who have a view of the whole end-to-end value chain. And I think that puts you in... A really good place for the future but i would say that wouldn't i say good and i'll just i'll just reinforce that because this before we started this podcast we're doing it for since february so we're coming up to a year now somehow um so something i'd never really thought about but um ed dimot said the same thing um eddie reynolds said the same thing um emma said the same thing you've said the same thing i can't remember if it was peter mann or stephen gazard but they said the same thing you know, breadth of experience, um, thinking about a business in different ways and building that kind of business brain, that commercial acumen, um, is is really, really important. And it's so consistent. And even like an MBA talk about T shaped individuals, yeah. don't they? You know, it's there's 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 something yeah. in there. Yeah, definitely. Think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um okay, but we'll move on to the to the famous quick fire round, um, Mr. Stebbings. So I'm sure you've um You've listened to enough of these to know which five questions to expect, but you know, in, let's pretend that you haven't. And the idea is to not think about it too much. So um, we'll just we'll just roll straight into it yep, if you have to sure. do that. Okay. So in in one word, Nick, how would your partner describe you? Um, you can say grumpy, but that's probably not particularly uh, complimentary. So I'm going to say curious. Let's say. Curious. Curious. Okay. I like it. Like it. Um who do you 
Who's your idol? Who do you admire? Um, so, lots of people, lots of people I've met personally, but if I was going to pick sort of three sort of, uh, I'd say three more, more well-known people, probably at least two of them are not particularly well-known. I'm going to give you three if that's a, if that's allowed within Hipfire Rounds. Shoot. Um, right. So, Oichi Ono, who is sort of like father of Lean, so he works at Toyota. He built he built the whole concept up from like the 40s through to the 70s. Incredible amount of vision uh, to build up those that concept and change a big company and the way they work. Um, a guy called Jim Sinegar, who lots of people might not have heard of, but he was the CEO of Costco uh, until probably about I don't know, ten years ago. But he really epitomised the opposite to me of that Jack Welch type character. You know, he he it wasn't really about putting himself in in the headlines. He did his standest to look after staff. He got criticised by equity analysts. Um, he uh, didn't care particularly. You know, he was taking a salary that wasn't massive. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think he's a very well-off man. Yeah. But he, you know, compared to yeah. a lot of his peers on Wall Street, his salary wasn't that great. And then the third one is uh, would be Marie Curie. And so Marie Curie still, I believe, the only person to have won two Nobel Prizes in two different scientific disciplines. Uh, she got the Nobel Prize for Physics and then the Nobel Prize for Chemistry a few years later. And the reason I say her is, firstly, um, I have a daughter who wants to go into science, and I think you know someone who's gone through that path and you know, to the nth degree is, uh, is incredibly inspirational. But I think also when we look at our industry and talking about hiring great people and of it having a, re- you know, a really great environment to work in, we are, and I'm aware of the irony of being a like, middle-aged class white man saying this, but we are quite homogenous still. And when Mary Curie was studying, you know, she wasn't allowed to study at university in Poland where she was born. And she had to do it sort of surreptitiously through this thing called flying university. Um, and then she went to another country and learned, I think, learned and obviously developed. And I think, you know, the more we can support you know, diversity of sex, diversity of backgrounds in this industry, um, the more diverse opinions we're going to have. Um, and I think a lot about things like when um, when Universal Credit came in, I don't know if it's still the same today, but obviously all these really smart people sat in a room and said, right, you're going to get your first payment after six or eight weeks or whatever. And there wasn't one person in that room, I imagine, who had lived on the breadline. He went, one second, you know, six weeks, eight weeks, that's not going to work for people in that situation. And so I think the more diversity yeah. we can get mm-hmm. around the table, with our firms, the better. Yeah, nice. Okay, what are you currently reading, Nick? Um, so I'm reading a book about the Cold War um, by uh, Jeremy Isaacs. Um, interesting, just like with what's happening in Ukraine, like understanding some of the background to that. And then... But well, that's the fact. I always have a fact book and a fiction book, and so the fiction book is a book called *The Gallows Pole*, um, which is a, was about is about um, coin cutters who used to clip the edges off coins and melt them down to make new coins, which was heavily illegal, yeah. obviously, in the in the 18th century Yorkshire Moors. So good books. Yeah, good. Yeah, it's well worth a read. Sounds interesting. Yeah. Okay, uh, it's my favourite. But what's your pet hate? Elfishness. I think ah. you know. Um, as I said before, at City, I worked with some wonderful people who shared information so so readily. Um, I think we've all got stuff to give, and you know where we are. And actually, say well, we we should reflect that we're very lucky to be there and look to share. And where we're in a business context and. We've got lots of knowledge. We should reflect we're lucky to be there in a shallow tea. I think it's really down to my cat hate. Like it. Okay. And everyone's favorite question. So you can go on holiday anywhere in the world to take your family, your kids or not, as the case may be. Um, where do you go? Um, well, the place that I've always wanted to go is sort of around Antarctica, uh, South Georgia, the Falkland Islands. Um, so oh, okay. if you... As you've just asked the question, I would do that. But in the past when you've asked it, I noticed you limited it to a week. 
Um, and I think I, that takes more uh, than a week. So if you limit it to a week, then um, I that I would love to go to Japan. Very sad and dull of me. Go to Japan and see the Toyota factory and they do tours. And one of the great things about Toyota is they have always okay. been very willing to share their processes and their ways, not just with random punters like me, not just with charities and stuff that they do, not just with suppliers, but also with their competitors, which is interesting. Um, I've never quite worked out why, I guess, because it seems they push them on to always be better and always to improve. Um, but yeah, I think again, if I was going to be dull and it was only a week, I'd go and do that. It's a long way to go for a week, <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah. It is quite a long way to go for a week. Thanks, Dane. This was a lot Thank of fun. Thank you very much, Tom. Cheers. Bye. Bye.